Welcome to the Vertical Church Podcast. Now here's Pastor Josh Butcher with today's message. Uh, We're starting this new series, and in this new series, we're going to journey with the Apostle John through the Gospel of John as we work our way up to Easter. Come on, who's excited about Easter? Easter's in, in six weeks, five weeks. It's, I think, 35 days away. It'll be here sooner than you realize. It really will. And, uh, and, and we've got plans. How many of you remember the egg your neighbor boxes? You know, the little boxes that we, yeah, those are coming back. That's part of our, uh, part of our process to help you invite people to church. Uh, we've already made some changes around here to make sure that we can extend our seating capacity quickly because we believe God's going to do something rapid in our church and we want to be able to, um, to keep up with him, to run at his pace, not slow him down uh, in what he wants to do. And so we want to encourage you and invite people. We're going to be doing a lot of things on uh, social media. Uh, we're also going to do like, you know, different kinds of uh, invite cards and ways that you can uh, invite friends and neighbors and all that to, to join us. But that's, that's Easter. Uh, today we're kicking off the series that's going to take us to Easter. And, and what happens in the Gospel of John, and before we get in there, I want to address attention that John addresses throughout the Gospel of John. And and it's this, and in Christian circles, even today, especially today, especially in uh, North American, United States, Christian circles, there are two incredibly common misunderstood words, and they're these words right here, faith and believe. These are two of the most misunderstood words in all of Christianity. The idea of faith and the idea of believe. And if we can, just for a minute, set aside our, our like religious upbringing or our theology and just ask ourselves, like, what do these words mean? What does it mean to believe something? The reality is we believe something primarily for one of two reasons. Either we believe something because uh, we've observed, we've experienced it, and so we know it's true. It, we've taken it in through our senses. We've, we've seen the, the water rise at the ocean, so we believe in tides, you know. We've, we've experienced it. We have some, some firsthand knowledge. We, we would call that, you know, believing based on evidence, but it's not necessarily like um, evidence like you might think. You might call this really believing based on experience. I know it's true because I know what I experienced. But we, that's not the only way we believe things. Sometimes we believe things based on the, the level of confidence that we have in the person who's sharing the information. Let me give you an example of that. When you were in school, at some point, your teacher told you that six times six was 36, right? All of us have learned six times six equals 36. How many of you went home and found, uh, or laid out six rows of six things and counted one, two, three? Did anybody do that? Kristen's in the back shaking her head like, oh yeah, I did it because I don't trust people. Most of us didn't do that. Why? Because we have confidence in that teacher. We had confidence in him. We had confidence in her that that what they were telling us was true. So we didn't have to experience it. We, We believed 
in them. Now, in Christianity, when we get to talking about faith and belief, guess what? They don't take on different meanings just because they're in a religious context. It's not like they become something else and they mean something that they don't mean anywhere else. But what has happened is these words, faith and believe, they've been, um, they've been divorced from experience. They've been divorced from, from reason and they've been confused with hope. Hope is good. Like, hope is, is awesome. Hope is awesome. Like, but, but just hear what I'm saying. Hope and believe are not the same things. It's not the same idea, right? And, and so many of us, when it comes to the gospel, here's why so many of the people that you know, maybe even you yourself, has struggled with believing the gospel because somewhere along the way, this is what you were told. You were told, you just have to believe. And it was presented to you as if it was like, brother, you just got to believe. Really? Why? Why do I just have to believe? You just got to take it by faith. What does that mean? Are you telling me I just, like the only way to have a relationship with Jesus is just to have some kind of blind faith? John, the writer of the Gospel of John, he would say, what? That doesn't make any sense to me. I didn't say anything like that in my, in my story of the life and ministry of Jesus. This idea that you just have to believe doesn't make any sense. And in fact, if you look at the New Testament, you don't find that in the New Testament. You don't find it in the teachings of Jesus. You don't find it in the writings of Paul. In fact, when you get into John, John pre presents an entirely different idea about believing. He presents a different paradigm. Now, what's interesting about John, John is the, the author of the Gospel of John. Either he wrote it or more than likely he, he, he spoke it and somebody else wrote it down. That's just kind of how they did things. And John never intended to be a religious leader. John, John wanted to be a fisherman. John had a five-year plan in place when Jesus showed up. John's plan, his, 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 his five, 10, 15-year plan was to take over his father's fishing business, to take it on and, and to run with it. And so John left his plan not because somebody said, not because Jesus came up and said, you just got to believe, John. Close your eyes and believe really hard. John says, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't abandon everything that I knew based on some kind of blind faith. What he tells us is that I followed Jesus because of what I saw, because of what I experienced. In his, in his story, in his gospel, he's like, hey, you got to understand, I witnessed this stuff firsthand. And because of what I saw with my own eyes, I left everything behind. And in fact, I came to the point in my life where I wasn't just content to keep that message to myself. 
I had to. I was compelled to tell others what had happened, but not just what had happened, but why it happened. And at the end of the Gospel of John, he shares his purpose statement. You know, those of us who grew up in the American educational system, they teach you that you put your thesis at the beginning. You want people to know the purpose of this paper, of this material, of this article at the beginning. John didn't do that. John put it at the end. And here's John's thesis statement. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Jesus performed many other signs. And we're going to get to that here in just a second. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Meaning, Jesus didn't do these in the backwoods somewhere. He didn't do them over in the corner that nobody saw. We just had to kind of assume, well, maybe that was true. Nobody was around. It was a miracle. John says, no, 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 no. He he did them in our presence. We, We saw with our own eyes these signs he said, which are, recorded, which are not recorded in this book. Meaning, meaning, hey, we saw so many things and I've put so many of them in this book, in the Gospel of John, what we would call it. He wouldn't have called it that at the time. It was just the Gospel for him. But he's like, I've shared so much, but you got to understand, there was so much more to share. And he says, I want you to know why I have written this down. Verse 31, he says, but these are written. All of the the, the 19 and a half chapters that come before this thesis statement, all of this is written down that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, John says, listen, I don't want you to just know what Jesus did. I don't want you to know what he said. I think that's valuable. I think that's important. You need to know what he did and what he said. But I want to tell you that so that you'll believe that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. And I want to know, I want you to know why you should believe it. So I want to tell you what I saw. I want to tell you what I witnessed first. My hope, John's would say, my hope is that that you experience Jesus through my experience and that you experience him in such a way that you'll be convinced just like I was convinced that he is who he claimed to be. And that as you believe that he is the son of God, you'll place your trust and your faith in him. And the result of that is you'll have life. In other words, John wants us to understand that that there was this sequence that he lived through, this sequence that brought him to a place where he believed, a place where where he put his faith in, his trust in Jesus. It's the same sequence that he lays out in the gospel, and his hope and prayer is that what happened to him will happen to you and me as we read his story. John's going to tell us. He's going to say, hey, listen, there were these events that happened. And they weren't just random acts of kindness. They weren't just just these random events, but they were actually signs that pointed to a greater reality. 
They, they pointed in the direction of, of Jesus' identity. So in that way, because there were signs that pointed to something greater, they were evidence of his identity. They revealed who he was. And as I saw these and I experienced them, I came to believe that he is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And I placed my trust in him. And here's why that's important, because nowhere in the Gospel of John does he tell us, hey, brother, you just got to believe. It's like, oh, you just, you just got to have some faith. Oh, he doesn't say that. I'm just going to believe and hope it all works out in the end. Here's the truth, man. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of these, they went through, they went through believing, disbelieving, believing. I'm not so sure. But John says, listen, I've come to the end, and, and, and these signs point me in the direction. And they've been good enough for me, so I hope that they're good enough for you. And they're not just random events. They're not just random acts of kindness. These supernatural miracles, the healings, the walking on water, the multiplying food, they point to the reality of who Jesus is. They happen, John tells us, he, he is crystal clear that the miracles that he puts in his story, the gospel, they happen for a reason, to point people to the identity of Jesus. And John includes seven of them. Seven signs, we're going to get through six because Easter. Like, what are you going to, we did a four-week relationship series, so we only have six weeks. And so we're only going to do six. I'm sorry, you're going to miss out. You're going to have to read about one on your own, all right? Read about the resurrection of Lazarus on your own. That's, going to, that's number six. We're going to go one, two, three, four, five, seven. And so, um, cool. All right, let's go. First sign, here we go. Water to wine. The first sign is water to wine which rhymes, and it's the only one that rhymes. All right, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let me, I'm gonna, I'm just, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to read this passage, and along the way, just kind of toss in some thoughts that we see, kind of pulling some stuff out of this, this Scripture passage. Verse 1, on the third day, pause, what? Those of us who know the story, and if you've already read through the Gospel of John once, you already know the story. But if, you've been, if you haven't been living under a, under a rock for your entire life, we all know what happened on the third day. So right at the beginning, John's like, oh, uh, excuse me, this story is actually about something else. Because this one happened on the <clears throat> third day. Everybody know what happened on the third day? Yeah, this is about that. What, what This is connected to that. Oh, now like all of a sudden, all of, the, all of our like antennas are up. Oh man, third day. Okay, John, we're in. Let's go. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and we're going to find out here in just a few, uh, a few verses that, that Mary actually had like an official job at this wedding. She had some kind of official role. She was either like the, the leader of the party planning committee, um, office fans, there we go, or, or she was like the head caterer or something. She had some kind of role in this wedding. 
And so Jesus' mother's there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, weddings in Jesus' day are not like weddings in our day. The one thing that they share in common is that they were both expensive. Weddings today, weddings then, it's not a new phenomenon that weddings are pricey. Weddings were pricey in Jesus' day. But the difference is, in 2020, if I go to a wedding, um, I expect that wedding ceremony to be about 20 minutes. If you go beyond 25, I'm frustrated with you. Because nobody here wants to be here except you. Right? So let's make it quick. Let's get in. Let's get out. Let's get to the food. Let's get to the wedding cake. And if your reception lasts longer than two hours, I'm probably going to leave. But in Jesus' day, weddings could go on for days. It was a huge celebration. And what happens next is a catastrophe. Look, look, look what John says what happens next. When the wine was gone. Oh, that's like, maybe, maybe in your tradition of weddings you don't serve wine. Cool. In this one they did. Let, let's put it like this. When the wedding cake was gone and the line for wedding cake was still long. <laughs> when, when, um, when, when, they, when they ran out of food, but the bride and groom hadn't even eaten yet. You know, like that was us. That's what happened to us. And so, cool. All right. <laughs> and so what happens, this is, a, this is an incredibly embarrassing moment. And so it says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And, and because she has some kind, of, some kind of role to play, this is a crisis. And so in the crisis, Mary does the thing that, that she knows she can do in any crisis. She can turn to her very resourceful son. <laughs> what was it like to grow up with Jesus? What was it like to be Jesus' mom? Hey, Jesus, we're out of bread can you do that thing? I'll turn my back, I'll close my eyes, and you just do it. And when we turn around, Panera. Thanks, Jesus. Like, is that what it was like to grow up with Jesus? It's just like, he does the thing, and it's like, cool, we don't have to go to the store today. That's awesome. But then look how Jesus responds to his mom. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Now, he did not say it with that tone, okay? In fact, what's really interesting is we read that and we'll say it like, woman, and he, that's not it at all. It's Jesus actually is taking a very formal posture because he knows how to act at a wedding. What Jesus may want to say is, mom, gosh, I'm here to save the world, not weddings. But instead, he says, woman, which for us, those of us who are just, you know, American, we might, we might take a, a note from our British friends. This is what, what Jesus is more so saying. He's saying, my lady, my lady. He, it's a really formal address because Jesus is at a wedding. And you talk formally at a wedding. You don't just, this isn't, this isn't our living room that we just go. No, he, you have an official role in this celebration, and so I'm going to address you formally. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet 
come. In other words, <laughs> Jesus is like, Mom, this is not how I plan to go public <laughs> at a wedding. This isn't, Mom, this, my, hour, my hour has not yet come. You know, Mom, this isn't very messianic. Stick around, Mom. I'm going to do some really cool things. I'm going I'm to heal this one person who hasn't walked in decades. It's going to be awesome. They're going to write about it. It's going to be beautiful. I'm going to find this one guy. He hasn't been able to see, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some stuff, and I'm gonna, he's going to get his sight back. Mom, this is, this, is, this is not that big of a deal. Definitely not a big enough deal to, like, do the stuff. But I love Mary's response. Look, look, Mary, Mary, in the next line, she says, she says to the servants, she doesn't even talk to Jesus. She's like, you'll do it. <laughs> it's just like a mom, right? Like, do whatever he tells you to do. She goes to the servants and just says, do whatever he, that's brilliant. That's so awesome. And what we're going to discover is that on the surface, this is not that big of a deal. But it's actually a sign. It's not random. It's actually incredibly significant what Jesus does at this wedding in Cana. It seems odd that the first sign, Jesus' coming out party, would be at a wedding where he turns some water into wine doesn't appear to be very significant. It's not healing anybody. It's certainly not raising anybody from the dead. So why in the world would John start his, these things are written, these signs I've put down, why would the first one be this? He doesn't tell us. He didn't tell us. Maybe, maybe afterwards Jesus sat down with him and, and Jesus kind of said, hey, hey, here's what's going on. Look, this is what's going on. This is what I'm doing. Maybe it was decades later and Jesus didn't say anything because he wanted it to fly so far under the radar that nobody even noticed until they thought about it. And maybe John was an old man and it finally, that's what he was doing. Wow. I've got to start there. And what we're going to see is this is a perfect introduction to exactly who Jesus is even though no one would know what happened except the servants. This is the way you let people know who you are when you're Jesus. Look, the next line. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, this wedding celebration, this was a good Jewish family. And good Jewish families had a whole list of rules for washing their hands. Maybe we ought to be a little bit more Jewish in 2020. But I'm, anyway, it's a whole different tangent. And so they had some regulations where you would wash to your, your, your wrists. Sometimes you would wash all the way up to your elbows just depending on what your tradition was and, and how it told you to do that. And so these, these big, large stone jars were for that purpose. They were filled with water so that you would wash your hands. But they're sitting there at the wedding empty. They don't have any water in them. Here are, here are six icons of the old covenant the old way of relating to God, the Old Testament. Here are six symbols 
for, for all the things that Moses told us about, and they're sitting there empty. And now Jesus has shown up to initiate a new covenant. And the first thing he does is he grabs symbols from the old covenant that are empty, and he fills them up. He uses, he uses something that would soon be replaced to point to what would soon be put in place. Jesus, on his first miracle, his first sign, he takes something that symbolized God's temporary arrangement with Israel. The old covenant established at Mount Sinai that was disappearing because it was being fulfilled. Because something new was happening because someone new had come. It's not that the stone jars were bad. It's not that the old covenant was bad. It wasn't evil. It wasn't sinful. It was just incomplete. And Jesus had come. To, to fulfill everything that that symbolized. Those stone jars represented the entire sacrificial system. And Jesus uses this moment where no one else is watching to illustrate something that wouldn't be fully understood until decades later. And it flew so far under the radar that the only people in the story who know what's going on are the servants who fill the jars. Look, look, Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. I love what F.F. Bruce, this British New Testament theologian, uh, says about this passage. He says, the water that Jesus just told them to put in the jars, provided for purification as laid down by Jewish law and custom, the water stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony which Christ was to replace with something better. Here, John chapter 2, on the third day, there's all of this foreshadowing about who this man is. And it's the perfect introduction. Jesus says, I want you to take those stone jars and I want you to fill them up with like, like normal. And then I want you to step back because I'm about to do something that you've never seen happen before. Because the old is passing away because something new has come. The old way is fading off in the distance. And a new way to have a relationship with God is on the scene. So let's, let's wrap up this, this story. He tells the servants, he goes on, he says, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Side note, because we're talking about serving uh, for the next three weeks. You just heard from Sterling, right, about serving. Uh, I, I preached this sermon in a different way when we want to emphasize serving. Uh, because I love this line. I, I, I don't know if it's original with me. I think I came up with it. Um, everybody got to drink the wine, but only the servants saw the miracle. Do you want to know why you should serve? Because everybody gets to drink the wine. Everybody gets to experience the presence of God, but only the people who serve get to see the miracles. All right, anyway, that's a side note. Plug for serving, verticalchurch.tv slash serve. Um, all right. <laughs> Let's keep on going. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Meaning 
you serve the best at the front end, and then when people's senses are kind of dulled, then you bring the cheap stuff. Look what he says. But you have saved the best till now, and God had to. Do you see how this is the perfect introduction for Jesus? Because what had come before was great, was full of glory, was so glorious that it caused Moses' face to shine so that the children of Israel could not look upon it or else they would just crumble under the weight of that glory. But this that Jesus is doing is so much better. It's like my Aunt Shirley in the family reunion. We would go to her house and, and, and we would be there before the family would get there and we would have dinner. Right, And she was like, my Aunt Shirley's the closest thing I ever had to a grandma. My, my dad's mom lived till I was like 18, but she was a mean woman. And so I'm just, she's, she's I, I, anyway. Um, anyway, my Aunt Shirley, she was, like, she was like my grandma. And she would make these meals and they would be awesome, right? And we would eat and you would be full and you'd be cleaning up afterwards. And she would say something like, uh, she was from Eastern Kentucky, so she had a real thick country accent. She'd say something like, Y'all just keep your forks, okay? Save your forks. And that meant, oh, I thought I'd date. I thought I had something good. But Aunt Shirley's about to bring out some real food. Like, she's about to bring out dessert. And I better hold. And so this is what's happening. This is what, that is exactly what the master, the master of the banquet says. Oh, like, keep the fork, Because this is better than what came before, and that's exactly what God is doing. The old sacrificial system had set the stage for for what Jesus is doing, just like the old wine set the stage for the new wine, the water that had been turned into wine. And what had come before was just a shadow of what was coming now. And just as the original wine wasn't better than the new wine, what's coming now for us is so much better than what the, the, the Moses had, than what Daniel had, than what David experienced. What we have access to is is like new wine compared to this old wine. And in the same way, God, through the nation of Israel, established a covenant that would set up the world to expect one to come who would fulfill the words. And Jesus uses this miracle, this sign, this this illustrated miracle to tell the world something new has just shown up. Those old jars, fill them with water, and I'm about about to turn them into new wine. Fast forward three years, Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he lifts up a cup and he says, this wine, this and this cup, is what? It's the blood of a new covenant. All these chapters before, three years ago, Jesus had already initiated new wine. New wine. In other words, this was more than a miracle. This was more than just some random miracle. This was more than, man, Jesus, thanks for having my back. This was more than than Jesus is just trying to save somebody some embarrassment. This is a sign because it points to something. It points to someone who would surpass the old just like wine surpasses water. And, 
And that's how miracles work in the kingdom of God. They're not just random events for events' sake. They're signs. Let me read this to you. This is the last last verse we're going to look at. This is John. I think this is John sitting down reflecting on this story. And he says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. Don't miss this part. Through which he revealed his glory. Pastor Josh, why do we pray for people to be healed? Do you believe God still does that? Well, yes, I believe God still does that. Why do we pray for people to be healed? Because we want to see his glory revealed. It's not just a miracle. It's a sign. Even today, when somebody is healed, when somebody's, when somebody's mind is put back together, when somebody's, somebody's um, uh, praying and God breaks in and he, he changes the situation and we would say, praise God for a miracle. God's saying, I've revealed my glory. What happens? What happens when his glory is revealed? Next words. His disciples believed in him. And the reason they believed is because there was a reason to believe. There was a sign that revealed glory. And just like John, we don't ask people, hey, brother, you just got to believe. You just got to take it by faith. No, 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 no. We are invited. We are invited to believe what happened We are invited to believe John as he records these eyewitness testimonies, these eyewitness signs, to hear the the witness of people who were actually there, people like John, who, who saw so much bloodshed, who saw people laying their life down, who watched friends and family be, be murdered because of their trust in Jesus. If anybody would say, you know what, this isn't real, this didn't happen, but he couldn't say that because he had seen it with his own eyes. He had watched Jewish brothers and sisters sold into the slave market and fed to lions. He had seen heartbreak. His city had been destroyed, and at the end... He says, all of these things I've written so that you would believe the guy I believe in. And at the beginning, he tells us, John chapter 1, verse 14. Look at what he says. Whoops. The word became flesh. John says, man, this Jesus guy, he was the logos of God. He was the word. That, that's a whole, it has so much meaning in a Jewish context, we don't even grasp it. The word, he says, he says it, it became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I'm not telling you about him making his dwelling among them, among them out there, a second cousin once removed by marriage, his third neighbor down the street who, who knew a guy. He's like, no, 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 no. He, he was here. We saw him. And look, that's what he said. He says, we have seen his glory because he revealed it to us in the signs. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
In other words, John's saying, I'm just telling you what I saw. I was a simple fisherman. I was minding my own business one day, and this guy came along. I was ready to take my dad's business. But what I saw, what I experienced, what I heard him teach, the, 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 the miracles that I watched him perform, they were so significant, so important, that I had to abandon everything that I knew to be true to chase after this guy who was the truth in flesh. And now I've... I, I can't let the story fade off and I've got to put it down so that future generations know not just what happened because it's so much bigger than that. They need to know why. Why? And so he says, John chapter 20, verse 31. Again, he says, these are written that you may believe. These are written that you may believe. Believe what? Believe in who? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. And as you believe that, by believing that, by putting your trust in him, by, by placing your faith, your trust in this one, Jesus, you have life in his name. This series is gonna be a fun series. We got five more messages in this thing. It's gonna be awesome. And my prayer, my prayer is that as we move through sign after sign after sign, that what John says happened to him would happen to us, that we would have life in his name. And if you've lost faith in Jesus, if you're struggling to believe that he is who he claimed to be, if you know somebody who's lost faith, who's walked away, who's given up, don't miss next Sunday. Let me pray for you this morning. Lord, we thank you, God, that we don't have to just go on blind faith as if, as if we have to check our, our, our senses, our minds, our experiences at the door and just hope that you are who you claim to be. No, God, there are signs. There are signs that reveal glory. John records seven of them, and we have the opportunity to experience them every time we come before you. Signs that reveal your character, signs that reveal your power, signs that reveal your love, your goodness, your glory. Today, God, as we wrap up this first message in this series, I pray that we would sit with this. That we would sit with John. That we would, that we would start working just through this, through this gospel. Through the good news as told by the Apostle John. As we see you do what only you can do our faith and trust in you would rise. 
And God, before we wrap up today, I want to pray and ask. Lord, we, we're not seeking signs. We're seeking glory. We want to see your glory revealed in our church. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to bring signs and wonders, to do miracles among us. Not so that we can be the church where the miracles happen, but we can be the church where the glory is revealed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We always appreciate hearing how God is moving in your life. We all have a story to tell, and we'd love to hear yours. Please visit verticalchurch.tv and click on the little pencil icon called Amen Corner to tell us your story. Also, if you'd like to support the ministry of Vertical Church financially, you can do so by clicking the giving link at verticalchurch.tv. Thank you again for taking the time to join us as we point those far from God to life in Jesus.